This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. I'm Amber Hamill, the community media coordinator at Free FM, and I'm Murdoch Ngaho, Māori media coordinator at Free FM. I'm not a journalist. I am not a journalist. I'm from Aotearoa. I'm from Australia. I don't know much about foreign ministry, but I do know the Minister for Foreign Affairs. I don't know much about the Minister for Foreign Affairs, but I might know a little bit about foreign ministry. I mean, a bit. Like, not heaps. We've got a new show about foreign ministry. Localising. Global. Aotearoa. It's got to be interesting because we've got the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Call it what you like. We've got the talent. He mea hanga tēnei hōtaka e ngā pūtea tautoko o ngā reo edirangi te motu. So today on our schedule, going to talk about trade. Are you still on for that? Yep. Great. As best I can. Maybe we could start by just kind of, New Zealanders have been really specific about they want trade to be able to be sustainable, they want it to be mindful of gender equality and labour rights and so on. And so I, I do think it, it would be great to get onto those things if you can, but I thought maybe we could start with what is trade? Well, in a conventional sense, I think trade is the bread and butter of foreign policy and that's certainly been the foundation from which foreign policy operates, you know, which is to try and improve the international rules-based system so that trading with other nations can be strengthened, but also you're reducing the barriers to being able to trade successfully with other nations. So trade as a core part of foreign policy has been around for a very, very long time. Let me take a couple of steps back. Firstly, Māori attitudes to trade, because You know, if we look at the way in which Māori operated traditionally in society in pre-contact times, pre-colonisation, trade was a very common and normal part of daily livelihoods. Some areas were located by the ocean and their primary food stock was from the ocean. It wouldn't be unusual for them to trade those foods for perhaps within land tribes which are foods from the forest but also in terms of resources you saw subsidian here in New Zealand from one place that's Tuhua and Tauranga yet you will find in terms of the network of obsidian it's spread across the country because it is a, a solid rock that can be used for cutting similarly with Pounamu so it's evidenced by our archaeological footprint that Māori traded quite commonly amongst each other in pre-contact times. And then if you go through the Pacific, across the various Pacific countries, it's evidenced that Polynesians frequently traded with one another as well. And it's not a new thing. I guess what's changed over time is the context for trade. So New Zealand has been very forward-leaning in terms of free trade agreements based on either bilateral or multilateral relationships. And that's to be able to ensure improved market access for goods leaving our country and going into other countries and also reducing tariffs so that there's no extra barrier if we're sending certain products overseas. If I think in more contemporary times with our bigger Māori 
interest in the trade space, like fisheries. You are seeing Māori trading fish, the commercial fishery quota opportunities very frequently overseas to get the best price for crayfish or mussels or whatever. So again, Māori are actively involved in trade. The area where I guess many Māori, many New Zealanders start to be a bit, I guess, they step back and tilt their head a bit and say, well, is this for us? Is in certain agreements where they don't think there's enough transparency about the benefits. So various trade agreements have reaped opportunities in some quarters, some trade agreements have been looked at in a very sceptical way. Think about the CPTPP, started off as a TTP mm. and then migrated over time, which was a multilateral trade agreement. There were very, I guess, concerned views from Māori about whether those the benefits that were supposed to flow from those that trade agreement would actually flow to Māori and there was also criticism about trade agreements not being exposed to a general public consultation and for Māori, consultation with Māori. Those issues were taken to the Waitangi Tribunal and that out of that whole process, what that led to, in my mind, was the approach of a progressive free trade approach and as well as uh, the formation of Māori groups to be able to engage in uh, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade on trade issues. So I think that's a positive thing that's evolved over time. Mm. So you mentioned a few things there that I think it would be really um, useful to unpack a little bit. And one of them was about getting the best price and, and tariffs and how those things work. Are you able to say a little bit more about kind of thinking back to that great example you used of exchanging kai from the sea for kai from the forest? Are you able to kind of explain in those in those kind of terms how a tariff operates? As best I can, you'll have to remember that trade and foreign affairs are separate portfolios. Sure. So the Minister for Trade is actually Damien O'Connor and I'm the Minister of Foreign Affairs. So the difference between foreign affairs and trade is that foreign affairs is about building the relationship to underpin other types of opportunities of which one is trade. But it's actually strengthening our relationships with other countries or across regions in certain ways. So there's a lot of diplomacy and advocacy on that front. Trade is the hard end of foreign policy, and I say hard enders because it's ultimately about economics and trying to make sure that the best arrangements for exporters can be achieved through various relationships, bilateral or multilateral relationships. So the question you asked me was explain how tariffs work and trade agreements. I think the best example I could give you in a very simplified format is a trade agreement is an agreement between two countries who undertake to identify where the beneficial interests are of trading certain goods are and to try and remove the types of barriers that might prevent the free trade and exchange of goods and services between those two countries. So tariffs operate as a bit of a, like a tax and can be a limiting factor 
I think, in terms of the opportunity of trading certain goods with a country. So there's a lot of negotiations that goes into working out a trade agreement until such a point that both parties are happy with what they've decided. There's a lot of economic assessment about the benefits back to each country and there's a lot of conversations around what the various concessions might be as you work towards finalising mm-hmm. a trade agreement. And I don't want to dwell on this necessarily, but what happens when those break down? If a trade agreement has been reached and signed, and let's say one party does something that is not in keeping with the trade agreement, it really depends on the severity, but some of those issues can be taken to the World Trade Organisation as a forum that kind of mediates disputes. There are mechanisms within trade agreements that help to facilitate disputes. It can be awkward, it can be difficult, it can be very complex. Now that's if an agreement has been signed. If an agreement hasn't been signed uh, by both parties and talks fall down or whatever, then the agreement sits and nothing happens. There's no opportunity for exporters between countries to do anything until that agreement is signed. Thank you, Nanaa. When we think about the relationships that we have with different countries, what's the main motivation for the closeness? Is there any prerequisite? Well, a lot of the relationships that we have are fundamental. So I think about the Pacific. We're in the Pacific of the Pacific. Our relationship to the Pacific is intrinsically linked through Whakapapa. We've got a lot of Pacific communities here in New Zealand and vice versa. We're responsible for round countries such as Cook Islands, Pukelau and Nui. And we have other relationships to the broader Polynesian part of the Pacific and further afield. So, you know, those are long-standing key relationships. And then, you know, with countries like Australia, those relationships date back to when soldiers fought in the World Wars together and the Anzac connection. So over time, that relationship has strengthened as a result of those kinds of connections. Australia is our formal ally and partner. They are very security-minded and focused, and they, like us, are a part of the Pacific and contribute to the Pacific regional stability and peace picture within our part of the world. And then there's the long-standing old, old relationships like that with the UK. The UK colonised New Zealand, so there's a special connection there as a result of it. You find ways to be able to modernise that relationship over a long period of time. For example, with the UK, right now we're negotiating a UK-New Zealand free trade agreement because they got out of Brexit in the European Union and it was an opportunity for us to say, look, it would be worth us working on a um, free trade agreement to see what we can do together. Mm. I suppose where I was going with that was, so it doesn't really come down to economics, resources, what we've built our relationships around are more common ideals. No, not necessarily. In fact, as I was saying earlier, trade forms the core of foreign policy, often being the primary motivator for developing relationships with other countries. However, as a result, in more modern times, 
there has been a feeling that we need to broaden the relationships with other countries beyond trade and think about the way in which we create good people-to-people connections and government-to-government connections that underpin, yes, trade, but other opportunities. So, you know, people talk about science diplomacy and how it's really important that we share our science knowledge to be able to continue to innovate. And then there's education diplomacy, you know, sharing of scholarships so that people get an experience learning in other countries and they take that learning experience back and they reflect it in as, as they you know, move through life and often take up leadership positions. More and more, as a result of COVID, for example, health integration is, the, is a new frontier. And I think about the Pacific and the way in which we can help the Pacific on the health front to be able to respond to COVID, but also how we can, in times of need, potentially share workforce to support immunisations and vaccinations. So, yeah, there's all different layers now of relationships. I wanted to ask about those um, more values-based kind of trade agreements, I suppose, and relationships that are, I'm thinking particularly of that um, agreement from not that long ago that's focused on sustainability and it's an agreement between New Zealand, Fiji, Costa Rica, Iceland and Norway, I think, which is one of those kind of Pacific partners who you've talked about, but um, it is kind of seeking to make, seems to me to be seeking to make a trade agreement that is, yes, mutually economically beneficial, but making a stand saying that we're making this trade agreement based on our values first. Yeah, well, New Zealand is articulating a values-based approach to foreign policy and how that reflects out in trade agreements, I think, is a challenge. If we think about from a values base about our perspective of kaijakitanga and being good stewards of the environment, thinking intergenerationally, thinking about the impact of climate change that's on the foreign policy space, the way in which it translates on the trade side is through you know chapters around climate change ambitions and reducing carbon emissions and you know, taking some certain actions within your trade agreement to commit your whole economy to becoming carbon neutral. That's one area. Also, you know, as we move forward and and the realisation of the digital economy, if we think about, I guess, from a values point of view, the free flow and share of information, integrity of information, the way in which we can optimise through innovation the use of information, The way we're translating that into trade agreements is through digital economic partnerships. So there's ways in which you can translate your values across into trade agreements. It's not hard and fast, I'll put it like that, but there are ways in which you can reflect some of the values and the intent of what you are about in trade agreements. I think what we have really captured in this episode is that the relationship between trade and foreign affairs is quite symbiotic and one can't really do without the other. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that, that is a fair assessment. Foreign affairs and trade go hand in hand. There was a time when the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade kind of guided both sides of the coin, so to speak. But of recent, we've split the portfolio 
So previously, Winston Peters held the portfolio for foreign affairs and David Parker held the trade side. In this current government, I hold the foreign affairs mandate and Minister O'Connor holds the trade mandate. But you are right, foreign affairs and trade go hand in hand. I wanted to ask a bit about that in the sense of, we talked about tariffs, but in the sense of sanctions in particular. So uh, that using trade as a tool in that way and how a bit more about how that works. Yeah, well, I think there are broader issues beyond trade that start to concern countries. And, you know, this is when there's a military coup or human rights abuses or things like that. Countries will look to its own mechanisms to say, well, how do we send a message to a country that we don't agree with what they're doing in a certain area? And sanctions often become the way in which those messages are delivered. Some countries have a formal sanctions regime that they can invoke, and those sanctions sit across a number of things. Travel bans, stopping certain trade in certain areas or products, and other things. And some countries don't have a sanctions regime and they join, I guess, they take a more diplomatic, diplomacy-led approach. And New Zealand's in that category. We don't have a domestic sanctions regime. But we do invoke a travel ban at its most serious kind of side of things. And we continue to advocate with other like-minded countries for the recognition of human rights, for restoring countries like Myanmar back to civil society government if there's been a military coup and things like that. So different countries operate differently, that's what I would say when it comes to a sanctions regime. It sounds like a polite way of docking your pay. Um, gosh, I'm not sure if it's that simplistic, but it is a way of sending a message that you are not supportive of certain actions that may be occurring within a country. Look, the severity of those actions are different and they can have both an economic and non-economic impact on the country that it's directed at. It's kind of like, um, I don't want to play with you right now while you're behaving like that. Yeah, go and stand in the corner. And think about what you've done. (laughs) Yeah, kind of like that. Given the scale of what we're seeing that is happening, we see it, we call it out, but we're not really doing that in a direct way. Do you think direct communication would work better rather than these kinds of sanctions? Look, I think different countries have different approaches to addressing challenges in their bilateral relationship or things that they're seeing in their region that they're not happy with. So I'll give you a practical example with the Myanmar military coup. And this was probably one of the first early decisions I made as minister, which was to say, no, absolutely, we cannot support a military coup in the overthrow of a civil society government. So we called for the return to civil society. We called for the release of any civilian leaders who were detained under the coup. We signalled that we would not have any high-level political engagement with the military leadership of this time. And we also redirected our aid away from the government directly, but into civil society and the NGO organisations. And that was to send a message. And we did it pretty much all together, all at once, because we know that when democracy is taken 
in that kind of way, it's a very delicate situation for everybody. People feel very unsafe. That's right, the people still need us, but we need to send a message to the government. Yeah. And then if I look to the challenge of the relationship with China and consider the way in which China is treating Australia and the sanctions imposed on Australia, which are mainly in the trade space, you can see what happens when a big power starts to say, no, I'm not safe. We're a small country in the Pacific, so we are very mindful of our size, of where we are in the region, of the tools that we've got available to send a message on the issues that we are concerned about and those things that define what we believe we are about. So it's not a it's not a hard and fast approach, mm. if, if I can put it like that. I think um, it could wrap up with us kind of just a final comment on the global nature of trade in the sense of the word globalisation in the sense of trade has become something that people have feelings about, let's say that, but all the things we're talking about are about global trade and the interconnectedness that we all kind of have had a really big reminder of lately. Those things you're talking about, we're we're a small country in the Pacific, actually quite a big country in the Pacific, but those kind of the changing scale of trade and um, finding our place in that as a kind of global trading entity. Those kind of things in, in terms of where we impose sanctions to send a message, not that we have a sanctions regime, or where we seek out those relationships. And possibly we could wrap this up with just kind of your thoughts on balancing that local global potential. I think citizens, New Zealanders, will have very different views about the benefits of trade. I understand and respect that and acknowledge that of those businesses that are actively involved in exporting product to other countries, the benefits flow through New Zealand because more often than not they're able to employ people and pay them often at a higher rate because the potential of their earning power through what they send to market is significant. And I'll say this in the knowledge space, knowledge and innovation. More and more the world is looking to what we're developing in terms of agri-tech and the digital side. And there is a high value dollar interest in that. But in saying that, the benefits that flow through are significant to people through employment and to the way in which they can continue to contribute to the local economy. The thing about globalisation, I think the the fear and the worry there is that the corporate ethic will take over. And that, again, is a legitimate concern because people understand, and especially since COVID, that it cannot be the economy at all costs that we need to think about ethical trading. We need to think about where we source goods from and on the way through we shouldn't be sourcing it in a way that exploits others. So we try and be good citizens on that front. We've got some challenge areas and I'm not going to dance around those challenge areas but as best as we can we do try and uphold the values that make us who we are and act in a consistent way as we trade with other countries, as we advocate around our bilateral relationship and what we see as important.
So it's a challenging conversation in itself because I think when I talk to my whanau about trade, they're not really that interested. <laughs> um, when I talk about foreign policy or foreign issues, they are informed by what they see around them and hear around them. So, for example, foreign policy, the things that they would be talking about at home will be Israel and Gaza and and what's happening there. And their natural instinct will go to sympathy with the Palestinians. This is an issue that's been around for a very, very long time. And then they'll be quizzing me, why is New Zealand taking the position that it's taking? And so I have to try and find ways to communicate why New Zealand is positioning on certain issues as if I were talking to my own family and it's not easy all the time. One of the things we're trying to ensure especially in this COVID context is that a lot of the work that the ministry does reaches out and is conveyed to New Zealand. So we make use of Twitter. Each embassy has its own Twitter site and you can often link to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their Twitter account. Also, there's a web page. And again, to find out the breadth of things that the ministry does, that's very much accessible through the web page. And the announcements that I make as Minister for Foreign Affairs and Trade can be found on the Beehive website. So there are opportunities for people who want to find out more about New Zealand's position on a range of international issues or the things that I've been saying, either through Twitter, the Beehive website or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website. So, you know, people can click onto those links and certainly find out for themselves the information that they're most interested in. If you're interested in finding out what I've been talking about in the foreign affairs portfolio, Go on to the Beehive website and follow me at Nanaia Mahuta on Twitter and you'll find all that information. He mea hanga tēnei hōtaka e ngā pūtea tautoko o ngā reo edirangi te motu. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.